take our Bibles this morning and let's turn to the Gospel of Mark as we continue to move through this great Gospel. This morning we're going to learn some things about the Lord. And remember that every time we learn something about the Lord thy God, it enables us, it's the foundation for authentic worship. Because we're gaining an understanding of who God is from the scriptures, not making it up ourselves or hoping this is how God is, is like, and he's really not like that at all. See, the, the scriptures must be adjusting our understanding of who God is. And so when we come to scripture this morning, uh, we're going to see the Lord in a very, uh, very special way. So as you turn there, we're going to be looking at verse number 32 to verse 42 in Mark chapter 14. Let's pray. Lord, this morning as I do come to this part of Scripture, and Lord, as we begin to see you in your deep passion, Lord, help us to grasp uh, even as much as we can, Lord, what is going on here. Help us to get a greater understanding of who you are and what you have done and what it actually took to give salvation to people. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have a better understanding of who you are today than we had before we came. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, let me read the passage and then we'll look at it. Verse 32, Mark chapter 14. And they came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell on the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, and their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. So this morning, again, we are in this Passion Week. It is very late Thursday into Friday morning. Uh, Jesus unlocked already the meaning of his death by connecting the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of Passover, transforming it into the Lord's table. And remember, at the Lord's table... The main course is no longer uh, 
sacrificial lamb, and the reason why is because Jesus is the Lamb of God, and he is the sacrificial lamb. Like no other, he's the one who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus' mission was to be a substitute, to be a vicarious sacrifice offered to God. Jesus understood this and embraced it. From the start of his ministry, he knew he had come to act as a substitute in behalf of his sheep. At the center of his teaching was the assertion that he was doing this not for himself, but for us, to redeem us, to ransom us, to save us, because we could never have saved ourselves. As Jesus approached the final hour, up to this point, no one was allowed to harm Jesus, because Jesus, the substitute, appeared now at a particular time in human history, and at the right hour, at the hour really appointed by the Father himself, he would bear the weight and burden of our transgressions. In our text, this Lord's Day, the passion of Jesus is really raised to the forefront and shows us the agony our Lord began to experience as the cross drew near. The agony of Jesus' suffering was born within the union of Christ's two natures. That is, his holy human nature and his holy divine nature. In Jesus' human nature, the sting of death penetrated him with a damnable power. If you take away the substitutionary atonement, or the shedding of blood, or the death of Christ, you actually empty the cross of his meaning, and you drain all the significance out of the passion of our Lord himself, which is contained in this text. Again, this hour is very late for the disciples. It has already been a very active and full day, and yet there's still more to come. The disciples were physically, emotionally, and spiritually exhausted. The Gospel of Luke tells us that they were exhausted for one particular reason specifically, from sorrow. They began to see the sorrow in the Lord, and it was spilling over on them. They didn't necessarily know how to handle it, but it was definitely evident in them. So Jesus proceeds to the Garden of Gethsemane. He takes with him three of his inner, uh, of the inner circle of disciples. And as it says in verse number 32, and he came to a place named Gethsemane. And of course, Gethsemane is, a Hebrew, is Hebrew. It means oil press. Uh, and had a considerable, considerable grove of olive trees there. Uh, some say it had a place where the olives were actually pressed where the oil could be extracted from the very olives themselves. And the garden, of course, lay east of the Kidron Brook and at the foot of Mount, the Mount of Olives. Of course, Jesus really went there because it was a secluded place. It was a quiet place, and it was a place for him to pray. That's why he went there. And I must admit, though, 
that the contents in this passage cannot be fully explained. The only thing I can do is try to make a feeble attempt at unpacking some of the details that are related to the horrible agony our Lord wrestled with that night in the garden. Now, all the Gospels record this event in the garden. So that means it it is an important event. Uh, It is an event that is really comes at a strategic point in all the Gospels. It is a passage in which we get a glimpse of the struggle our Lord wrestled with. In other words, the cosmic battle that was going on that we cannot necessarily see with our eyes, but see in the demeanor of Jesus Christ. In his holy human nature, he wrestled with some something no one ever wrestled with, and no one could have wrestled with, and won. So there's actually this morning four observations in our Lord's cosmic warfare in order to redeem us and ransom us and save us. So we're part of this equation that's going on here in the garden. And so let's look quickly at the first observation of Jesus Christ, and it's found in verse number 32 to 34. And notice verse 32, the beginning of the verse. And the first observation is this, that Jesus contemplates the prospect of his death. Jesus went to the garden for a specific reason, and it says in verse 32, and he said to his disciples, sit here, until I have prayed. So Jesus' prayers in Mark are all said in times of important decisions and crises. Of course, Jesus is approaching this very hour for which he came to this earth in the first place, and he instructs his disciples to sit at the entrance of the garden until he made a definite prayer. Now, the way the Bible's written there, that means that Jesus wasn't going there to keep on praying. He was going there with a specific focus, a specific request, all right? And so his prayer would have the focus of one thing, and that would be this, his soon approaching death. And, and some of the things that we can see that brought him to this place. Verse number 33, it says, And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be very distressed and troubled. Now, he takes, of course, his inner core of disciples. This has been the inner core from the beginning when Jesus picked them. All right? And some of the reasons he could have brought them with with him is that they were to be witnesses to his agony. Uh, they, were, they were to see, be eyewitnesses to the struggle that he had in the garden. And of course, they're going to be the writers of some gospels and epistles. So they're going to be the witnesses of what took place. All right, so Peter definitely, remember, Mark wasn't there when he wrote this epistle. Mark is using Peter's material to write the gospel. So who's the eyewitness? Peter's the eyewitness in this particular case. 
A second reason could be he brought them for companionship, a source of comfort during his time of trial. We'll see how that works out. But the thing is that Jesus was going to be at a very low moment in his life, and so he wanted companionship with him. In verse number 34, it says, And he said to them, Again, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. So right before their eyes, the disciples witnessed Jesus as a, at a very low point, at a point they never saw him before, in which his power and strength have, have just seemed to leave him. He was visibly beaten down, and the only weapon left is prayer. So Jesus was clearly under strong agitation and had become completely distressed and troubled with sorrow. See, his spirit was visibly overtaken by uneasiness and dread. Now, one thing that we can learn from this, at least on the surface, is how keenly our Lord felt the burden of the world's sin. You you can feel it oozing out of the passage in in language that cannot express fully what was happening. It It only can stack up some adjectives to help us to understand, listen, the Lord was really in a place he never was before. He was facing something that no one would could have faced before, and he is the only one to face it. And so he is definitely keenly uh, feels a weight and a burden of the world's sin. Aren't you glad he did that? Aren't you glad that he came to this place? This is not a, a passage of Scripture you just read through and not look at the details. This is a passage of Scripture that... It, We are definitely connected to those who know Christ as Lord and Savior. You should be very, very glad that someone undertook this battle for you. And, of course, it was the Lord himself, and he felt this burden. A second observation in Jesus' cosmic battle is this, is this, that Jesus actually collapses under the prospect of his death. Now, if you notice in verse number 35, it says, and he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground. He collapses right before them. Now, you would have to ask the question, why did Jesus get so disturbed by the prospect of death? And he loses his composure. He's the God-man. Why doesn't he use the, the deity part of him to deal with this? Because the deity part of him doesn't die. The human part of him, of him dies. He is dying in behalf of sinners in which he is not a sinner. And so why did he quail at the expectation of his death? Well, let me just say first, Jesus does not lose his composure and courage at the thought of death itself. He loses his composure and collapses at the prospect of his death. It's a different, it's a really a, a large distinction. 
between death itself and the death of Jesus Christ. When you read about how others thought of or how they faced death, they seem to have done it with a greater composure. In fact, one example is Socrates greeted death as a friend and a liberator to a better life. Even Hitler was attracted by death and thought it was a way to peaceful bliss. Now, don't get me wrong, because no person can make a correct assessment as to what happens in the moment of death or afterward. For apart from belief in Christ as Lord and Savior, the ultimate conqueror of death, all comments of death are actually mistaken and even delusional, like Socrates or Hitler, to, without Christ, to look at death as something pleasant. You don't know anything about it because you don't know what's on the other side. You don't know that judgment is coming. You did these things in your life. You will be responsible for them. See, people, if there's no God in your system, you don't have to worry about that. But it doesn't mean that you're not wrong because you will face, everyone will face God in judgment. No matter how they look at life or whatever worldview they have or however they define death in their own selves, it doesn't matter. What matters is what is really true. And the only place that you can find what is really true about death is in Scripture, is in God's Word. So see, Jesus doesn't lose his composure merely at the thought of death, but at his death. And the reason why is here Jesus' soul is one that is downcast. It is dejected because he was able to grasp comprehensively the meaning and implications of his death. His soul, it says in verse 34, is deeply grieved to the point of death that Jesus, deep in his inner man, was exceedingly sad at the prospect of what, will, what was going to take place. That Jesus was walking at the very edge of death and therefore his sorrow reached deep within his soul. It's just like when the psalmist uh, said uh, in the Old Testament when he was consumed with a weighty situation, it's recorded in Psalm 42, Oh. It says, oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Why are you in despair, oh my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Ever been in a place where your soul, I'm talking about something deep inside of you was disturbed. And the only thing you could think about was that disturbance. You couldn't even entertain another thought because you were deeply grieved and taken in by a particular circumstance that was going on in your life. So what is also going on here is that, as I said, Jesus is seeing into what's going to take place in a way that we couldn't even imagine. And, of course, part of that is that Jesus must fight the battle alone, completely alone. It becomes apparently clear that Jesus alone 
must will to lay down his life for the sheep as a good shepherd. He must will to do that. As it says in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. See, the Lord was coming to that place where now as a human being, and remember, the humanity is, is bleeding out of this passage of Scripture. Right? Jesus is dealing with something very, very, very heavy, and he's making, he's, it's, it's moving towards his will, his, his volition to do something. So he's struggling in his humanity uh, to not only will to lay down his life as a good shepherd, but to will to give his life a ransom for many. As it says, remember, the main text of Mark is Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now it's becoming a reality. And, of course, he had to will to be made sin on behalf of sinners. And why is that? 2 Corinthians 5 tells us he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. And then he willed that he may be a curse on behalf of sinners. If you remember back in Isaiah 53, what does it say about Christ when he would come to be sacrificed? It said he would be stricken. He would be smitten of God. He would be afflicted. He would be pierced through for our transgression. He would be crushed for our iniquities. And he poured himself out, it says in Isaiah 53, to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. And of course, Galatians picks that up and says this to us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So Jesus was considering all these things as he is approaching what needed to take place to accomplish redemption for us, salvation for us. But maybe this last one was the most difficult, that Jesus had to will to abandon himself to a darkness of cosmic proportions by being completely alienated from his father. That had to take place. On the cross, Jesus had to die alone. Who can conceive the horror of becoming these things? See, Jesus coming under the curse of the law and the wrath of his father, Jesus being completely alienated from his father, the light of the world must experience the thickest darkness and ultimately separation from his father's companionship. He had to do that. See, and you know, the thing about when people talk about hell, the thing about hell is not that God's not going to be there, but that God is there. And he's there in his wrath. And he's there where you are completely separated from anything that's good. The goodness that comes from God, that's the terror and horror of hell. And so here Jesus now is understanding that fully. 
And notice the weight of this unspeakable ordeal. This awful moment in time is right at the doorstep of our Lord. And so Jesus molded over his death, and it caused him to fall to the ground. Jesus' prayer that he muses in his mind is, is in the form of a question. Is there a way out of this? As he thinks about it, is there a way out? So this is the third observation that we come and we see in the Lord. It's the, the observation of the Lord in this comic, uh, cosmic warfare is that Jesus prays a conditional prayer at the prospect of comprehensively understanding his death. See, Jesus lies prone on the ground in intense prayer, and he offers up a conditional prayer. Look what it says in verse 35. It says, And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. Now, we're talking about the Lord praying a conditional prayer that if there is a possibility at all for this event to pass him by, then please, Lord, let it be. Father, let it be. However, God had no plan B. If such a possibility existed, the Father would use it. There is a prayer, this is a prayer of the Father to strike the shepherd. Remember, back in verse number 27 of chapter 14, it says, because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. So the Father already, and Jesus knows by Scripture by that it is already ordained in God's plan, in God's uh, foreordination of his passion and death that there's no other way so this is the reason that jesus can actually make such a request because the resources of the father all things are possible if you look at verse number 36 it says this and he was saying abba father all things are possible with you so based on that jesus prayer is justifiable Remove this cup from me, he, begins to, he continues to pray. The total humanity of Jesus is evident in this prayer. So what, what can we learn here? I think what we learn here is what an example our Lord gives us of the importance of prayer in the time of trouble. Even play, praying things that are completely impossible, and for us, un, it's, we couldn't even understand it if we tried. See, in other words, prayer is the best weapon, not only at all times, but in times of trouble, to pray when you are in trouble, to pray even in the psalm that we read this morning when David was in trouble. The only way, Lord, how can I get out of this before Abimelech? He's going to strike me dead. What does David come up with? Drool and act crazy. And he did, and he got out of it. So that was the answer to the prayer. The Lord delivered him from trouble by giving giving him the ability to be able to act like a nut 
and drool in front of the king, and the king said, this guy's crazy, get him out of here. Well, he he rescued him. So God rescues us in very strange ways. But for Jesus, there is no rescue. There could be no rescue. If this prayer was answered, there may be the possibility that we could never be saved. So Jesus, in other words, must die a death like no other. It is a death unspeakably terrible because Jesus becomes sin, which incurred the full justice and the full wrath of God. I don't understand that. I don't understand that. When the judge tells a criminal that you have a life sentence in prison, you think how horrible that would be to be confined in a place like that, in a terrible place with with other very uh, criminal-minded people. And then maybe even be on death row where you're looking forward to a lethal injection or whatever they do today, the, the electric chair. And you think, wow, uh, you know, you get, get some comprehension on, on what uh, justice, a full load of justice could be as, as a human being. But the full justice and wrath of God? We see glimpses of it in Scripture. We see that God does not fool around when it comes to his justice. He cannot fudge on his justice because he is God. He can't change his character for us. He is is God. So, see, God the Father is going to pour out his wrath against the unredeemed, the ungodly, and the unrepentant sinners. And the only hope of escape from the outpouring of wrath is to be covered with the blood of Jesus Christ, to be covered with the death of Christ. That means if Christ did not die on the cross, the wrath of God would not be turned away, and we would still, his wrath would still burn against us. However, Christ's supreme achievement on the cross is that he placated the wrath of God. He turns the wrath away from us. So the wrath could never come upon us, but is going to be fully poured upon Jesus for your sin and for the sin of all those who would be redeemed. If that didn't happen, God's wrath would burn against us because we were not covered by the sacrifice of Christ. So, This conditional prayer shows us his humanity, his deep humanity, and the struggle that he had within his own soul for what was coming. And you and I cannot comprehensively think through what was going to take place, but Jesus could. See, Jesus took the full brunt of what death is. He he died an eternal death. How, How do you even define that? How do you describe that? Eternal death? That's a conscious death forever. He took all that on the cross because he was the only one who could do it. So this all brings Jesus to a fourth condition or observation, and it's the observation uh, of the Lord's battle in that Jesus surrenders and submits to the Father's will. Notice in verse number 36, It says, and he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet 
Here it is. Not what I will, but what you will. Now, you would all along the way, Jesus definitely submitted to the Father's will. He always delighted to do the Father's will, but it's almost like Jesus being human, saying to the Father, Father, but this, this, there's got to be another way. There's got to be some, something else. But Jesus comes to the place, of course, and says, no, Lord, Jesus loved uh, to be obedient to the Father, and he right here remains steadfast to that obedience because the deeper desire for Jesus in his soul was to have God's will done, right? That's the deep desire of the soul. In fact, that should be the deep desire of all Christians. When we pray, we should always be praying that God's will would be done. Now, whose job was it in the Old Testament for the will of God to be done, especially in the area of atonement? It was, of course, the high priest. See, the high priest was to make atonement for sin in behalf of the people before God, and he was someone who, in the end, could deeply or could really actually deal gently with the sinner, directing them back to the way of God, helping them to be right with God and to stay right with God. That was the ultimate task of the priest, the high priest. And so we see here that Jesus' humanity and deity and his dignity and humility come together. And Jesus submits himself entirely to the Father in order to achieve his complete union with his redeemed children, that this must take place if I am going to buy back from the slave market of sin my children. And so just take your Bibles for a moment and turn to the book of Hebrews, because Hebrews gives us several things that, that show us that Jesus was fully qualified to hold this office of high priest. And it says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse number 7, I direct you there first because in this passage of Scripture we see that Jesus is displayed as being human and he is displayed as someone who prays. It says in Hebrews 5, 7, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 7, it says, in the days of his flesh... He offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to to the one able to save him from death. Now, it says something different here. The days of his flesh includes more than the hour of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane and the hour of torture on the cross. The whole of his life is is brought in here, his learning, his limitations, his humiliation as the Son of God. So Jesus is under the full pressure of humanity as a man. So therefore became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He also became a man of prayer, for it says in the scripture there that he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. That's someone who is praying from the depth of his soul, understanding what is happening and where he is fully engaged. So he knelt in the garden that night 
the night of his arrest because he was faced with such a humanly terrifying death and such a divinely necessary sacrifice that only the Father could come to his aid and save him from death. Now, where it says in the last part of the passage there, the one able to save him from death. It seems a little different than what I just said in the gospel. It doesn't mean, though, Jesus was saved from dying because he was crucified and died. What it means is that Jesus was delivered out of the state or the realm of death or better, the power of death. In other words, death could not keep Jesus Christ. There's there's nothing that could have held him in that place of death. So God the Father answered Jesus' prayer by resurrecting the Son and exalting him to the right his right hand in glory. So you see, Jesus, of course, there displayed, was, was depending, it, it showed first that him as a high priest was depending in all his humanness, his human experience on the aid of the Father. So now he surrenders his will. And then also in Hebrews 5, 7, it says, and he was heard because of his piety, right, that he displayed as a high priest deep reverence to the Father, that Jesus rendered appropriate awe before the Father, and the Father fully answers his prayer. And then also in Hebrews 5, 8, that he, of course, obeys the Father's will. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. See, Jesus became, ex- he became experimentally acquainted with obedience. It does not say that he learned to obey but he learned obedience. He learned from the things that he suffered. That is, his obedience and surrender to the will of the Father. The obedience referred to here is obedience in the character of the high priestly office. And that was this, to do all the will of God, to do all that God appointed you to do. And of course, to do that so in order to gain the end of your office. And what was the end of the office of the high priest? Well, it was to expiate guilt and to save humanity, to forgive sin, to cover sin. That was his job. And he had to make sure that everything was done so that could happen. If it didn't happen, then the people themselves were in great danger of having the wrath of God poured out upon them. So no matter how severe the sufferings that would be required of Jesus to obey the Father and to secure our salvation, he did not shrink back from, but submitted to all of them. So a true man, in perfect submission to his Father's will, and whose only desire was that will. For it tells us in Hebrews 10, verse number 9, Behold, I have come to do your will. The commandment the high priest received of the Father was that he should lay down his life for his people, in whose place he stood, and for whose benefit he acted. Like it says in 
the gospel of, or the epistle of Philippians, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So the great act of obedience for this unique high priest, Jesus Christ, was that he should offer himself for us a sacrificial offering before God. So what we learn really here in this section is what a striking example our Lord gives us of submission of will to the will of God. Right? That when we give ourselves over a living, as a living sacrifice to God in Romans 12, why are we to do that? So we are not conformed to the world, but we're transformed by the renewing of our minds so we, know, we would know the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. So in other words, for all believers, we must all come to the place where we not only learn to pray in time of trouble, not only do we learn as a believer to be keenly aware of what our Lord went through to for us to be saved, but also the example of us submitting our will to God's will. See, it's not about us praying for things that we want. It's for us to pray for things that God wants. It's we're praying for God's will to be done on earth as it's done in heaven. We're not praying for our will, but see, see, as we grow in Scripture, God conforms our will to want to do and pray for his will. That's where we're all heading in our life. And so Jesus here gives the, a striking example of how what he went through, he was able to submit himself to the will of the Father. So Jesus contrast to the Aaronic priesthood, Jesus is greater than all other priests. He is not from the line of Aaron, who died. Jesus is related to the priesthood of Melchizedek. If you ever read in Scripture about Melchizedek, he's a very, very unusual character. He has no lineage. He doesn't have a beginning or an end. And he, he has an eternal priesthood. See, Melchizedek, which has an eternal aspect to it, meaning that Jesus is a priest of God eternally. So that means now Jesus Christ, who is perfectly qualified as high priest from an eternal order, can and will provide salvation to all who ask, making Jesus' ministry different in that unlike all those who have gone before, his ministry is eternally effective. That means that when Christ gives himself as a propitiatory sacrifice, that means he satisfies what God requires because God requires the death penalty for sin and his justice demands that the life is poured out. That means that when a repentant sinner obeys Jesus, the source of eternal salvation, that God's wrath and justice toward that person is satisfied. 
That means that Christ's sacrifice then sets aside sin, purifies his people, delivers men and women from judgment, and averts the wrath of God. So Jesus, as the great and eternal high priest, takes care of everything that pertains to our relationship with God. And we should all be glad that he did that, and he took all these things upon himself for our salvation. Do, do we, are we excited about that? Amen. Are we excited about that or not? I mean, come on. Are we thinking about what really is taking place here, or are we just like the disciples, falling asleep, not watching, not taking things seriously? So this last section, I want you to all look there in Mark chapter 14. Because there's a danger, a spiritual danger in this hour that extends to the disciples. And that danger extends to us as well. And what is that danger? That even the strongest disciples fail. They fail. So that, in other words, meanwhile, back in the garden, the apostles' frailty becomes apparent Three times Jesus warns his disciples to watch. Watch lest you you be caught sleeping. Three times he finds them asleep. Look at verse 34. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. What are they watching for? They're watching for the enemy. Not only the the enemy to come with the army who's going to betray Jesus, to come at a time, uh, they're to watch for that, but they're also to watch spiritually, right, for the spiritual attacks that come during times like this. And then look at verse number 37. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? And it means one hour. And if did you notice in the text in verse number 37? He does not call Peter, Peter. He calls Peter what? Simon. You know why? He does that. Well, remember, um, Peter's name means little rock. Well, Peter wasn't acting much like a rock there. In fact, this, this disciple, who was willing to give up his life for Jesus in his boast with strength enough to die for him, At this critical moment in the Lord's life, he can't even gather enough strength to stay awake and alert for one hour? Oh, are we just like them, just like Peter, right? We we fall asleep. We're not really watching spiritually. We think everything's fine, well, and dandy. Remember when everybody around says, peace, peace, the Lord says, there's no peace. There is no peace. So we have to be spiritually aware of what's going on in our life all around us all the time as his disciples. We have a target on us. We're children of Jesus Christ, right? We're to have the whole armor of God on that we may stand up against what? The tripwires and traps of Satan himself. So in other words, we are to be soldiers in this journey called the Christian life. 
And as soon as you think you're not a soldier, you're going to get shot at. I don't know any soldier who's in a firefight who decides, I think I'm just going to take my armor off, lay down my weapon, and, you know, have a nice iced tea. You don't do that. You're always on guard. Oh, no, the Lord is not a killjoy. He wants us to enjoy our life, but he wants us to do it with sobriety, with, with spiritual strength, with realizing life is short and you, you may not have tomorrow, so live your life for the Lord today. Do what you can today for the Lord. See, all these things come into place when we think about watching and praying. That's what he keeps saying to his disciples. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. So you know what? For us today, you know what's important? Let's watch and let's pray that we would be delivered from these times. In verse number 38 Why should the disciples of Christ watch and pray? Look what it says in verse 38. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. Some translations say enter into temptation. Why? Because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Right? Why should I pray? Why should you pray? Because we are praying against falling into temptation. We are against falling away from Christ, getting off on things that we shouldn't be spending time with, by ordering and prioritizing in our life in a way that pleases God's will. And then why do the disciples not watch and pray? Well, look at verse 38. Because the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Now, the spirit here is not the Holy Spirit. The spirit here is the human spirit. The weakness of the human spirit with its tendency to sin and has no vigilance to watch and pray. The flesh is the old sinful nature that is controlled by our passions and our desires. In in strong temptation, the human spirit wants to overcome the temptation, but the flesh is weak in the temptation, unable to put up a fight against the temptation. And, of course, it doesn't really have a desire to do so in the end. But at conversion, when we come to Christ, the believer now is regenerated and given new divine life. The old sinful nature is still there. It's still found in our being after we're converted to Christ. So Christians now have two natures, the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is opposed to the new nature that wants to obey Christ at all costs. And so the flesh doesn't want to obey Christ at all. It wants to do what the passions and desires in the world and Satan wants them to do. So see, Christians now have a ready spirit inclined to do good, that is the Spirit of God living in them, but they also have a weak flesh inclined to do evil. So if we do not rule over the flesh as a believer, it will rule over us and drag us into sin. Now just look again back at verse number 39 in our text. It says again, he went away and prayed the same words, meaning Jesus Remember, he had one thing on his mind. He was praying for one specific thing, right? 
his, his death. And then it says in verse 40, Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And then notice it says, And they did not know what to answer him. You know what that means? They were speechless. In other words, they were guilty. Guilty of what? Not watching and praying. So his disciples fully yielded to the flesh. But for this reason, that Jesus must suffer alone. Even his close disciples could be no comfort to him at this time in his life, at this point in his journey to before the cross. Not even his inner core of disciples could support Jesus in time of his in time of agony, the burden of their circumstances and their weakness of the flesh caused them to abandon any resistance. You know how it is to fight sleep, right? Try fighting sleep. It's hard to fight sleep. It's hard to fight sleep. So they found themselves guilty. They have slept through the Lord's agony. And they were speechless, and they felt it. But a third time, verse 41, he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. In other words, Jesus says, It's time. Your sleeping is enough. The hour and power of darkness has come. And, of course, they didn't realize that something dreadful is about to happen. And what's about to happen in verse 41? Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. That's what's about to happen. But what, what's interesting, what, one person brought this comment out, up. I thought it was very interesting to think about, that Jesus is, feels, when Jesus feels the most excluded from God's presence, he is in fact closest to God's will. That when Jesus is separated and alienated from the companionship of the Father, he's closest to the will of God. So Jesus is handed over to sinners in order to redeem sinners. And then he says in verse 42, Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And that ends that section of Scripture. So a lot of, a lot of uh, drama there in that passage. So I think our place is to be spiritually vigilant. That really, Christian, as Christians, we must stay alert and keep our souls awake. That we must watch like soldiers because we are in enemy territory. That we must stay on guard and fight the daily fight and the daily warfare. That we must know our weaknesses as well as our strengths. Remember, the spirit must be strengthened and the flesh must be weakened. We must pray regularly, consistently, and carefully. And we must practice being dependent dependent on God and not self-dependent. We must surrender to God's will so that God's will will be our highest desire. In fact, that God's will will be our only desire. And then we must turn our situations over to the Lord in prayer and trust him to work out his will 
so that he receives the glory and the honor by his people. You know, God works everything together for the good, to those who love God, right? To those who are called according to his purpose. God takes situations and molds them and shapes them to accomplish what he wants to. And we don't always know what that is. But we know that God is a good God and he loves his children. He's going to do the best for us. So whatever situation we ever find ourselves in, no matter how complicated and and twisted it may seem, you're a believer, God has his hand in it. And he wants to bring it to the end for good for you and for his glory. All right? And he does. He does. And he will. So I pray this morning that this scripture this morning may be a source of encouragement for us as we walk through this world on our uh, Christian pilgrimage on our way to the celestial city. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, for the battle that you fought on our behalf. Lord, we know because we have the rest of Scripture that you've won the battle, that you accomplished everything that needed to be accomplished for our salvation, for our redemption, for us to be made right with you. And, and Lord, let your children be forever thankful for that, Lord, but make us people who are watching, who are spiritually alert, who are growing in our theological understanding, who are submitting to your will, who also want to walk in the Spirit so we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. People, Lord, make us people who want to see the gospel go out so others can hear it so they can be saved. Lord, please do not let us get so wrapped up in ourselves that we forget your work. Lord, help us to always be praying, pouring, pouring out our heart to you, praying things that are impossible, but within the realm of your will. So I pray, Lord, this morning that you would just keep us mindful of these things during the, our weeks and months and years ahead. So, Lord, we can be disciples, not disciples that fall asleep, but disciples that are alert and awake and ready to do your will. And I pray this in your name. Amen.